It's Coin Talk, America's most decentralized podcast in the game. Uh, myself, I'm Aaron Lammer. My co-host, Jay Kang, joining shortly. Our partners over at Medium, they're great. They help make this show possible. They've got a collection of 11 features on crypto. Read.medium.com slash crypto. Check those out. Get your crypto reading diet together. Go follow some stuff on there. Become a member if you're enjoying it. It's worth it. Uh, yeah, let's call Jay. This episode of Coin Talk was taped Monday, October 29th at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. The Bitcoin price index was $6,288. Jay, I want to talk to you today about crypto influencers. Are we crypto influencers? I think that's a question we should keep coming back to. I don't. I think we should try and answer that question last. I'm gonna go with. I'm, no, I'm gonna go, and this is not even in a self-deprecating sense. Uh, but I'm gonna go with a hard no right now. But perhaps by the end of the show, I will be convinced that that maybe we are influencers in crypto. I always like to take the opposite tact as you because it makes the show more interesting. So I guess I'm arguing that we are crypto influencers, but let's try to unpack what that means and think about what uh, influence in the crypto sphere really entails. Because um, I feel like we are witnessing the twilight of the idols. This first generation of crypto in which the big names really, really held a lot of weight. And you could really make a lot of money and go to a lot of conferences. Uh, some of that stuff's getting interrogated. Have you been keeping your eye on any of that stuff? This is the first I've heard of this thesis, but yeah, I don't think you're wrong. I mean, I, let, let's name some names. You're, you're talking about people like uh, Roger Ver, Charlie Lee. That's to me like first wave ska. I guess I'm really talking about <laughs> second wave ska. You're, you're, so you have these ascendant people... Um, and yes, Sky is coming back. You're speaking my language here. Exactly. Like so, first and second wave Sky aren't like uh, contradictory or opposed to each other. But no one would mistake first wave Sky for second wave Sky. The second wavers I'm thinking of are people like um, Meltem Demurers, who's like a ascendant crypto conference personality, or even people like um, Mike Dudas. I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Who runs a newish publication uh, called The Block, and these are all people who have come under fire for sort of conflating their crypto influencer status with also criticizing things within crypto, and I think are either being accused of something on the spectrum from hypocrisy to uh, a secret agenda. Okay, so in your mind right now, we're in sort of the two-tone specials phase of crypto. Yeah. And the early Jamaican roots are are gone. And so yeah. we are actually- I'd also put in like a little Rubini's a little bit in that camp, Bitfinexed in terms of like the strongest critics. I'm basically like talking about people who've built a career out of thinking things about crypto. Roger Ver built a career out of putting $300,000 into Bitcoin. Yeah. I don't think it's really like his ideas that blew minds so much as his early actions. I think that's unfair. Uh, I think that he was a 
tireless advocate for crypto in the way that somebody like uh, Antopolis is now, you know? Yeah, um, perhaps. First wave. Yeah, you can argue that, you know, one is better than the other, one is more eloquent and less unhinged than the other. But I don't think you can argue that one is more dedicated than the other. You know, and I would say that of the two, I would say probably Roger Ver had much more to do with the blossoming of crypto than Antopolis. So yeah, it's like it's not, those guys aren't really being heard anymore. Yeah, and it's not necessarily a, a competition, but there is a lot at stake. So like, let's take Meltem Demiris, because I feel like this is like the conflict where these ideas have been most clearly articulated. So she's written a lot about crypto. She's appeared at conferences. She did early work. I think she was originally involved in like oil something or other, and then sort of moved over to to both being employed within and writing and thinking about uh, crypto. And one of the things that she's written and thinks about crypto is that most altcoins are shitcoins and that shitcoins are a scam. Not like a hugely controversial viewpoint. Yeah, it's something that is espoused on this show from time to time. So they j- Jay, Jay, this show is pro shitcoin, just for the record. <laughs> so just, <laughs> just to clarify then, what you're talking about really is a generation of people who came up sort of trying to parse out this mess that was happening about like five, six years ago. And now their job, for better or worse, is to go to crypto conferences more or less and talk or to go on like uh, MSNBC, not CNBC and talk or to have like an influential Twitter following or something like that. Like that's that's what you're talking about. Like that's the new wave of influencers. Yeah, I I think so. I think that there are people who are trying to take all of the craziness that is crypto in 2018 and make sense of it for an audience. And that can be everyone from someone who's legitimately a journalist to someone who's running a coin to someone who's an analyst and is making calls. Like everyone is trying to say what they think. Okay. There's one thing that is clear across crypto. It's a place where people want you to know what they think about it, except the whales who are quietly living in Puerto Rico. Okay, so, uh, yeah. Then I, I agree that Meltem is one of those people, and uh, yeah. she is part of a class that I would say that has tried to professionalize and put a good, fa- like, put a good almost corporate face on crypto and to popularize it through being like, hey, I'm like a reasonable person, and I have made other types of investments in the past I'm not like a you know crypto fascist or a uh, anarcho capitalist. I'm just like a regular person like you who thinks this stuff is cool, right? Yeah, and she's I would say in terms of like where she is on the spectrum, I'd say she's closer to the like uh, big financial services company yeah. version of crypto than she is to the anarcho capitalism view of uh, crypto. However. She has advised shitcoin-ish projects before. She has bought and encouraged other people to buy shitcoin-ish projects. And she is now decrying many of those projects uh, at places like conferences and in pieces of writing. And as a result, was called out by many, many crypto men uh, for doing so. And it struck a bit of a a nerve for me because I was like, how dare you call out someone's shitcoin past? Like, <laughs> first of all, like let 
let uh, he who has never dabbled in altcoins um, cast the first stone. Yeah. I hear a lot of Bitcoin maximalists out there, but no one's playing with their hand totally up. And I would be very surprised if like crypto is your whole life that you never dabbled in any other coinage. Well, just what's the complaint? You know, like uh, what are people mad at her about? I think the complaint is hypocrisy. Basically, you did and profited things that you are now discouraging other people from doing. And we've done the same thing on this show. We've done we, things. We haven't profited, and, but yeah. Well, we've, yeah, the only, <laughs> yeah, no one's shitting on us because no one shits on you when you lose money. Everyone's just like, sorry, bro, you're terrible. At we this. have tried to profit and now are yeah. warning the public about. <laughs> Basically, if we had sold the top, we would have been guilty of this. In fact, we've actually just been the suckers who lost money in the shitcoin ecosystem to sharks like Meltem Demirers. But I would say we, we knew what we were getting into. Like when we started the show, we were like, we're going to go some dark places, buy some crap. And if we lose money on it, we'll deserve to. Yeah, we, ha we have a purity of vision. You cannot take that away from, from at, us. And at the same point in that purity of vision, I don't think I'd feel guilty if I had made a bunch of money in shit coins. Because clearly I wanted to or I wouldn't have bought them in the first place. So, Like I wanted Sumo Coin to moon. I'm not like happy that Sumo Coin is worth ten cents now. It was what's worth over ten dollars. <laughs> is that how bad it is? Literally, that is not an exaggeration. <laughs> That's so I, bad. I think I think the top was maybe more like eight ninety. The top was eight ninety, and now it's trading for ten to twelve cents, depending on when you're listening to this. So it's like two. It's like less than two percent of the top. <laughs> That's horrible. I should start. Um, you know, at the top of the show, we announced the Bitcoin index price. I should just have the price of Sumo Coin in the outro each week. Um, I okay. So I, I I think that I I have a sense of what's going on then, which is this woman who journalists call when they need a quote from somebody who they can trust within the crypto space is now going around saying, hey, all shit coins are bad. This was a bad idea. But in her past, she also did some shit coining. It's similar to like this story that ran this morning in the Times about Beto O'Rourke at some point was like paving the way for an El Paso developer to make like a shitty development that was going to displace people. And the implication was like, hey, in your past, you sort of, you know, participated in shitty neoliberal politics. Why are you so holy now? Right? Like it's it's yeah. that sort of base like hypocrisy charge. To put it in another cryptoian terms, there's a lot of people who are Ethereum purists who are like, everything was ruined by all these trashy ICOs. And it's like, yeah, also your Ethereum went from like five dollars to over a thousand dollars as a result of all these shitty ICOs yeah. at one point. Yeah. Like it's not a system where these things aren't interdependent. And uh, tell me if I'm wrong, but the general idea is that she has a lot of influence. And that she should not be shitting on shit coins if she had some in her past and that doing so is harmful to crypto. I think it's something like that. Okay. Or that at least she should be more transparent about it. And I think transparency is always a weird double-edged sword because it's like the way that people know about this past she has is having a open public Twitter in which she's yeah, she got these tweets from the past about it. So. Actually, just not deleting your tweets is a form of transparency if people are, like, active enough to go look, and they have. Now they know. Yeah, I, I look, I, I, I did see the tweet storm about this, I think, that a lot of people were linking to. And it, it was just sort of, like, endemic of a type of logic, I think, that works on the Internet, especially in 
tweet storm form where you just sort of quote tweet a bunch of stuff that the person said in the past and then point out how that does not align with the thing that the person is saying right now. It's actually something that people do almost every single second of the day to Trump, you know, like take a tweet from the past and be like, that's what you said about Obama. And I just find that that as a discursive debating technique that I find it to be quite lame. And I don't really, like, I, I don't really under, like, look, the president is something completely different. We can, ex, you know, we can not have him as part of this conversation. But in general, it seems to say that your public record on Twitter must be immutable for all times. Like, you can't change your mind about anything. And that if you do, then you're a hypocrite and nobody should take what you're saying now with any sort of seriousness, right? Like, the, like, I, and that seems to be the type of argument that happens a lot in crypto. So I don't know. I, I was not particularly receptive to this. Anyone who tells you that they fully understand stood crypto in 2015 and had reached every conclusion that they were going to reach in 2018 and 2015 is lying to you. Yeah. A lot of the stuff we have got to see play out before we can say anything absolute. I feel like every three months on the show, we totally reset our opinions. Yeah. We were Bitcoin maximalists for a while there. I think we're maybe going to like let that one go cuz uh cuz I don't know how long I can be a Bitcoin maximalist, but like <laughs> wait, why? Why is there a time limit on it? I don't know. It's just making me feel sad. Yeah, I don't like, I, I think the I think the uh, sort of politics around it are not I, I don't think they're close. Also, honestly, if the entire appeal of crypto is just going to be Bitcoin maximalism, there's just not that many more places to go. I mean, we've sort of talked about yeah. this. Why did Meltem Demir's experiment with altcoins? Why did I experiment with altcoins? Because I was curious. Because I wanted to know. And maybe I was driven by a profit motive. Clearly I was. Clearly she was. But that's everyone in crypto. I have yet to meet someone in crypto who a profit motive had nothing to do with their involvement. Sorry, buildlers out there. Like Another person who's gotten criticized in the last few weeks is that guy Bitfinext. Yeah. Who's like, oh, is they raising the alarm? And people are like, lock him up. Yeah. And... I don't understand why individuals who are critical of elements of the crypto apparatus are suddenly like wide open to being uh, locked up or canceled, yet giant exchanges that act without transparency. Roger Ver says insider trading should be legal. Like the power players aren't in any way acting this way. So it feels weird that individuals, particularly individuals' conduct in 2015, 2014, even two years ago, pre-bull run, is is suddenly like a, a total hypocrisy. We didn't know then what we know now. Yeah, and also like with this Meltem thing, I think we would be remiss to not discuss the fact that like there aren't that many women in this space, you know, and yeah. you and I have been around the internet and journalism and... Uh, like, I guess the ways in which these things develop, these sorts of... I've traveled all over the internet. <laughs> well, no, but seriously, <laughs> I think that the thing that you and I and, you know, s- certainly past guest Adrian Chen and our, our friend are qualified to talk about are how these sort of sub-communities like crypto on the internet operate. And, you know, a big part of it, I think, is sort of finding the, the if there are women in that space and there aren't that many of it, then they're held to a completely different standard. Uh, you see it as well in like sports writing as well, you know, like where or or sports TV, where like a woman who like 
mispronounces someone's name on ESPN gets hammered for like three days about it. And meanwhile, you have dudes who are who don't know a thing about the sport they're talking about, except for the fact that they played it a couple, you know, for a couple of years, getting everything wrong. It doesn't matter. I was going to say that everyone I can think of has been hypocritical in crypto. I'll say there is one person who's been entirely transparent and has not gone back on his word. And that's Adrian Chen. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's true. He, is, <laughs> he will never own a Bitcoin. He does have. He was like, this is bullshit. I would never want to own this. And not only has he not done it, he has not said, I wish I w- bought Bitcoin. I've never heard Adrian say, I should have bought Bitcoin. His beliefs and politics have been static across it. And uh, this, uh, this program salutes him. Okay, but uh, how would you feel if I told you that Adrian does have some Dogecoin? I feel like. Adrian owning Dogecoin is actually on brand also, yeah, so I'm, I'm going to allow me it. Too. I'm going to allow it. <laughs> and to your second point, which I found interesting, is that, like, well, why does, why does the opposition to this sort of stuff, why does the panic, why does it organize around people who are more or less powerless, you know, like, uh, or, or, or who are just people with Twitter accounts? So, for example, like, I think Meltem is a little more than a person with a Twitter account, but Bitfinex is just a guy with a Twitter account saying shit that you can agree with or disagree with. But the idea that he's somehow responsible for everything shitty that Bitfinex and Tether did or everything that they weren't transparent about, uh, that it would have been all fine if it wasn't for this guy who kept pointing it out. Like, I don't know. I, I, I just find that to be incoherent logically and also just like kind of, like, it's just weird. Like, why aren't, if you are into crypto and you want crypto to be good, why aren't you mad at Tether? You know, like, why aren't you mad at Bitfinex? Like, why are you mad at this dude with the Twitter account? It's just weird to me. Yeah, it feels to me like there's a weird ethical shading that favors Trumpian attitudes and worldviews and hurts you if you try to act reasonably, openly, or rationally. So you have, like, a, um, a McAfee type, right? Is doing everything that Meltem Namiris is doing except 10,000 times worse. Way worse. Lying. Lying about taking money. Basically extorting people who are doing ICOs, just like wild, wild pay-for-play shit. And whenever that's called out, it's like, YOLO, that's exactly what you'd expect from me. Craziness. I drank a guy under the table on a Bitcoin cruise. (laughs) It's like people who your moral ceiling is very low are advantaged within this ecosystem. And people who actually think about their ideas and the effects of them and how this whole system works, or potentially people who inject any nuance or subtlety into their understanding are disadvantaged within that system. So what I see in crypto is a ton of people who are just like, decentralized capitalism, you can do whatever you want. And then other people who are like, ah, eh, like maybe people are getting ripped off who are retail investors. And what the core crypto people, I don't mean Bitcoin core, I just mean the uh, the fanatics, the the, crypt, the the fanatical wing of crypto yeah. is like, you shouldn't try to blow the whistle on Bitfinex tether fraud because that could cause a tether panic, which is bad for my bags. Yeah. Everyone's basically like, but what about my bags? And if someone else does something that in any game theory sense is bad for their bags, they feel comfortable attacking them. Even if, in the case of Meltem Demirs, what she's accused of is basically acting in the interest of her bags in 2015 and acting differently in 2018. And I haven't heard anyone 
from that fanatical crypto zone tried to do something that was bad for their bags. There is something about the structure of social media, especially Twitter, that leads to just the same structures of arguments being repeated over and over and over and over again. And this sort of pointing out of, of really easily explainable and not even particularly troubling hypocrisies, quote unquote, is really the thing that I think fuels Twitter more than anything else. And like, I, you know, like it's not surprising that it would show up in this sort of crypto space because, uh, you know, most of the messaging is on Twitter. Hey, I want to pause things here for just a minute. This is your co-host, Aaron Lammer. Uh, people may know that I host other podcasts. Yes, that's right. This is not my only podcast. Uh, one of them is called Stoner. It features interviews with creative people about their relationship with marijuana. We've had all kinds of people on, from people who work in dispensaries to uh, Congressman Earl Blumenauer, who is the head of the Cannabis Caucus, to people who are trying marijuana for the first time in their 40s. It's the whole spectrum. It's uh, not uh, trying to convince you uh, to uh, do it, nor is it uh, fear-mongering, much like this show. It's a cannabis moderate look at what marijuana is all about in 2018. I really recommend checking it out if this sounds interesting to you. So just go in the podcast app of your choice, search Stoner, listen for my voice. If you're enjoying it, let me know. Okay, back to the show. When you were in high school, was there ever like a cheating scandal at your high school? No, we didn't get caught. <laughs> That's exactly what I'm talking about. Okay, so there was a massive cheating scandal in um, in the AP Physics when I was a uh, senior Wait, in high oh, school. Oh yeah, okay. So I cheated throughout AP Physics. Okay, so this is a T. So if if you're too young for a TI-82 story, <laughs> just zoom ahead now. But if you know what a TI-82 is, first of all, Ali Wong's jokes about long like stand-up set about TI-82 is one of the funniest things I've ever fucking heard. <laughs> and it only it's only funny if you had a TI-82. So you could copy between the TI-82s. Yeah. So uh, kids in the first uh, one got the answers to the test, put it on a TI-82. By the end of the last period, literally hundreds of people in the, in the school had the answers to this test. Sure. Uh, more than 50 per- so they they asked everyone to put down their calculators and more than half of the class had the answers on their TI-82. Oh, no. Not Aaron Lammer. Aaron <laughs> Lammer was in period 1. Would have had it. Would have liked to cheat on it, but because of circumstances I was prevented. So Someone please fact what, check that cuz I am not sure if Aaron Lammer was in period. One. Some of my friends from high school listen to this show, so you send an email. I mean, you know where to find me. Um, okay. So what do you do in that situation? The penalty for cheating on the the test could be suspension, even expulsion, but they're not going to do that to half of the class, right? So in some ways, people are protected by group bad faith. This is what I think is happening here in these situations. If we actually look deeply enough into the majority of people in crypto's past, we're going to find this kind of stuff. We're going to find the dirt on their TI-82. Yeah. The smarter ones have probably deleted their Twitter history. The even smarter ones than that maybe weren't tweeting about it. But I would be very surprised if there's truly no shit on a lot of the uh, uh, shoes that have been walking around these woods. Yeah. So 
in a situation like that, I think it becomes like totally subjective who gets taken down, who gets crap for it. Because we know we can't give everyone crap. If, if everyone who like had to own up to owning some shit coins and then saying shit coins are a problem for the ecosystem, there'd be no one left in crypto. And so in these kinds of situations, we target the people, we target women, we target people for various reasons that they slightly stand out of the pack yeah. rather than just reckoning with this as a whole, which I think is the larger thing that needs to happen is that the media within crypto is just a, a hopium uh, feedback cycle in which no one can really raise the alarm. No one can really say anything negative. Everyone has to collectively believe. And there's varying levels of hypocrisy, but I, my take is that almost everyone's a little guilty. Yeah, well, I, okay, so to play devil's advocate a little bit, right? Sure. Uh, although I want to go back to your TI-82 cheating scandal, which is, okay, the... Meltem's job description is to be basically an advocate, right? I think she actually has a job at some point. No, no, but like her, like her professionalization within crypto is somebody yes. who talks about crypto and is supposed to be like an actual authority on the issue, right? I believe the term you're looking for is thought leader. Sure, she is a thought leader in crypto, and that's not deniable. I think that maybe she in a self-deprecating moment would say that that's not true, but like that is true. You and I are not thought leaders in crypto, and we say the same things that Meltem says, and we have no stake in whether or not people trust us about our crypto beliefs because our show is about how you shouldn't trust us on the crypto beliefs. So I guess my, my devil's advocate argument and, you know, uh, would be, or question to you would be like, you know, does she have some responsibility as a crypto thought leader, as somebody who does put herself out there quite a bit in the press as somebody who should be listened to on this? Like, should she just be a little bit more transparent about this stuff? And should she perhaps not hit shit coins with such a heavy bludgeon, if that makes any sense? Like, because her, her statements about the ICO world and sort of like, you know, fringier crypto projects is pretty is pretty absolute. You know, she just says that she doesn't think that there's too much hope for any of these things right now. No, no, no. <laughs> First of all, no, we are crypto influencers and more on that later. <laughs> Number two, I think we believe that you should not pontificate about crypto, but never buy crypto. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is the fundamental divide that we're going to get to here, Jay. We're going to leave behind our friend Meltem Demirers, uh, who is not our friend. We, we don't know her, but she should come on the show and talk about this. Yeah, we like her. I like her. Yeah. I mean, I if I, for no other reason, I like her because other people are attacking her and I don't like the people who are attacking her. So I, therefore, I like That's her. That's exactly my reason too. <laughs> but I argue we are crypto influencers and that every single person, when they do anything in crypto, their first fundamental choice is, should I buy Bitcoin? Should I just write about Bitcoin or should I buy Bitcoin and then write about yeah. Bitcoin? And the journalistic establishment, I'm, I'm making giant air quotes when I say journalistic establishment. In fact, every time I, we use the word journalism, it should have giant air quotes. <laughs> yeah, that's really it. true. <laughs> but if you work at the New York Times, if you work at the New Yorker, like our guest from a couple of weeks ago, Nick Palmgarten just wrote a huge story in the New Yorker, which I recommend, you are expected to not hold coins. And 
if this show has one animating idea, it's that you learn a lot more about crypto if you actually try it yourself. And that in some ways, understanding it without ever touching a coin is a, is a thin and flawed way to, to understand it. So the minute you buy a coin, I mean, you're worse off buying, say, sumo coin than Bitcoin. But the minute you start experientially uh, experiencing crypto, you are putting yourself under the same hypocrisy lens that Malcolm Demirus did. And every single action you take could be construed as hypocritical. I, for one, think Bitcoin is dangerous. I truly believe this. I think it could undermine the very anchor of society and culture. However, I hold Bitcoin. That's hypocritical. We got to be able to talk about this. Like we can't have this totally divided world where there's no coiners who are against Bitcoiners and fanatic Bitcoiners who believe that you shouldn't ever criticize Bitcoin because that would be hypocritical if you have Bitcoin. There has to be room for the crypto moderate, Jay. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I do think that there is a crypto moderate take in here that would be a little more critical of her, which would be that she didn't just own shit coins in the past. She worked for some of these companies as an advocate, you know, and my argument yeah. would be that that's not disqualifying. She just had a different level of involvement in these things. And the fact that she was, you know, like a advisor for them, like who the fuck knows what that means? Like, it doesn't mean that you're trying to pump that thing for everybody. It could just mean that she's helping with the tech or with like PR strategy or whatever, you know? Yeah, I agree with you. I'd feel differently about my Sumo coin past if Sumo had given me those coins yeah. rather than I bought them at a dollar. They went to $9 and then went to 10 cents. But, like, I did that like a retail investor. But your general point still stands because, like, there are in the crypto space, there is nobody who is like, totally pure in the same way that the Times would ask their reporters to be pure, you know, or like Bloomberg yep. or any of these financial institutions that have strict, strict guidelines on how much exposure their journalists can have in, you know, like if so, for example, like if you ha hold Apple stock, you can't write about Apple, you know, like yep. that's a strict rule and it ensures that you have full transparency, but it also that you don't have these types of conflicts in crypto that doesn't exist anywhere. The thing that you were talking about where journalists have to do that, like, yes, that is true at The Times and at The New Yorker and at Bloomberg. Uh, but that's about it, I think. You know, like everywhere yeah. else, like if you go to Gizmodo, if you go to uh, any of these very, very highly trafficked places, even like Forbes with Laura Shin, who, you know, in all of her pieces discloses that she owns crypto. Like, I, I think that there, you know, there is that acknowledgement that you do have to own it to really understand it. There was even like a genre of crypto type of piece, which was like, hey, I'm just like a zany guy in Brooklyn who's like a tech reporter and I'm going to buy my first Bitcoin and trade it and write about it, you know? So Yeah, sure. But I agree with you that like once that's gone, for you to have any type of, this is not true if you're just a reporter, but if you're a commentator like you and I are, I think you have to have some sort of exposure into it to understand how it works. I agree with that. And if that opens up any type of hypocrisy for which what you're saying now is completely invalid, then I would just say like, okay, well, critic, you know, like person with a Pepe avatar on Twitter who's yelling at me, like, let's look at your bags, you know? Yeah. Um, and and, and I, I don't think it would hold up to any sort of scrutiny. Yeah. I mean, if you are interested in crypto right now, you are embracing the contradiction. If you hold Bitcoin right now, you're holding 
a coin that uh, simultaneously is uh, funding uh, the fascist right in America and is a tool for people in Venezuela to get their life savings out and is burning tons of electricity and is, and the list goes on and on yeah, and on. Yeah. And if you want to come up to me and go, hey, you're a hypocrite, you're a Jew uh, funding um, <laughs> uh, a coin that, uh, that fuels anti-Semitic violence, I would go, you're right. You're absolutely right. But I also don't want to just walk away from that. I don't want to say I can't participate in anything that is contradictory and uh, still an open question in a war in a way. Because if you walk away from those things, then you're just simply saying I have no power over them. Like if everyone who is worried about some parts of Bitcoin just can't participate in the system without feeling like a hypocrite, that's basically just ceding the ground to the YOLO ethics McAfee world, which is the people who never claimed to not be hypocrites just get it. And I personally feel like as a uh, American right now, I don't feel like giving up all the ground, you know, like I feel like sort of wrestling the narrative a little bit rather than simply saying anytime there's a gray narrative, I'm just walking away and washing my hands. Yeah. Yeah. The, that sort of purity testing, again, is something that's very popular on social media. And I don't think it is really congruous with the world that we live in where these things will always, if something is a new idea in the tech space, and if something is a new way that people are congregating online, like Bitcoin, you know, like Joe Wiesenthal, our friend at Bloomberg, you know, I think he said this first to us, which is that Bitcoin and cryptocurrency in general is, a, you should think of it as a social network. And I think that that's true. The thing about any new type of social network is that at the very beginning, it's going to be it's going to be occupied by these dudes, you know? Like, it, it just is. Like, there's no, there's no way around it. It will always be occupied by these, by fringe groups and people who are trying to find ways to get around censors and people whose usual uh, sort of spaces of congregation have been wiped out, you know? Like, if you have a subreddit that is gone because Reddit banned it, like, you're going to be immediately interested in a decentralized form of social media and a decentralized form of, uh, of, of chat apps, basically, right? Because, like, you feel like they can't come after you there. Yeah, our guy Tony Shang, uh, I'm just going to talk about every Tony Shang newsletter <laughs> on this yeah, program because yeah. I think they're fucking great. Yeah. I recommend them to people all the time. So he had one... Um, pretty recently about basically like all of these exchanges you you've mentioned Coinbase yeah. are trying to come up with their own stable coin a because uh Bitfinex is probably not completely wrong and that Tether is wildly shady and uh it's always better to have your own stable coin than use someone else's stable coin the history of stable coins has been that um you know they uh one becomes dominant and uh, you want to be you want Coinbase wants the Coinbase uh, stablecoin to be dominant. I think Circle is the Coinbase one, and I think Gemini is also working on one. Sure. So why do they want to do this? Well, if you need a stablecoin to buy Bitcoin, if the only like fiat on-ramp is through that coin, basically, if you have the dominant fiat coin, which I think there's a good chance that it would be whatever Coinbase comes out with, you basically capture the audience, like in exactly the way you just described, the uh, social networky way, yep. right? You have to know your customer to get in with Coinbase. You have to go through Coinbase. 
because they're the ones selling that fiat coin. And so basically, in that scenario, Coinbase has created a social network, which is all of the crypto buyers in the world, massively valuable. And so he was saying, I think this is from a Ben Thompson article in uh, Stratechery, which is, he, he says, in zero marginal cost businesses, of which the internet is full of them, yeah. it's a winner-takes-all mentality where you aggregate the audience. That's what Coinbase is trying to do right now. That's what Gemini is trying to do right now. And that may be like the true victory in crypto land. It's not going to be, you know, some ninth degree D app. That will be the beneficiary of all this work. But the biggest winner is going to be the person who becomes the Facebook of crypto. And we've talked about this many, many times. This is the like chair you want at this table. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, we talked about both the pluses and the minuses of that, you know, and whether or not it's congruous with the theory of decentralization and crypto. Like, yeah. Somebody is building something like that right now. And, you know, this week after the horrible news in Pittsburgh, you know, a lot of the news has been about Gab and about, which is a company that tried to do an ICO, you know. They basically, as I understand it, tell, correct me if I'm wrong, Gab is a decentralized, or was going to be a decentralized Twitter clone. They were going to do an ICO, and then they were like, oh, wait, this is way too much work and too hard. Yeah. Why don't we just do a crowdfunding? People pay for us to do this. And this is the place where the shooter in Pittsburgh would post a, you know, completely reprehensible Nazi propaganda Nazi posts. And, you know, the idea of Gab, of course, is that because it was decentralized and censor proof that you could do that without being banned the way that you would be banned on Twitter. And so this morning, the news came out that GoDaddy was uh, dropping Gab, you know, Gab.com and, and that PayPal, I think yesterday, stopped allowing money to go through Gab. And I think that for all those people, like their first thought right now has to be, we need to go to a cryptocurrency-based system here or a crypto blockchain-based system that's censorship-proof. So, I mean, Aaron, like, I mean, you, I think you've answered this in part, but like, you know, we, we all read those stories. We talked about them a little bit in our Telegram group. Like, did, does it make you uncomfortable at all? Because like, that clearly is what's going to happen, right? I don't think that that's, I don't think that that's debatable. Let's talk about the actual history here, because we talked about this early on, could have been a basement tape, but I'm going to say I think it was a released tape. And my take was of all of the Alex Joneses in the world. Have you noticed that you don't hear as much about Alex Jones now that he's not on any of the major platforms? Yeah, or Milo. I mean, Milo is, Milo is a great or example Milo. of that. Where is, where is Milo now? Milo may have changed his identity and be like a presenter on TV in China for now. Yeah. I, I haven't heard a thing about him. Yeah. I don't know what he's doing. Have you like Once these people are off major platforms, you never hear about them. And one of the reasons that I think you don't hear about them, you would think that Alex Jones and Milo would be the massive stars of the breakaway, no platform, start our own platforms movement. Yeah. But they're actually not. They're just kind of go quiet and silent. And my take is that no one really wants to deal with these people. Like if you think that you're going to start some massive decentralized move away from Twitter, but your foundational people are asshole trolls. Good luck with that. That isn't like those people need to connect with a mainstream audience. The reason they're powerful on uh, Twitter and Facebook isn't that 
they're hardcore people there. It's the uh, the the window shoppers. It's the uh, I'm a little interested in conspiracy theory yeah. people. And once you get the hardest core people, it's just an echo chamber and it's a sausage party and it's not pleasant and they're all fighting with each other. And so the only people who really want to run something like that are amateurs. So my take would be that Gab seems to be run by amateurs. The fact that they're on PayPal and that they've got their DNS secured on uh, on uh, GoDaddy. GoDaddy. Yeah. This is very like, uh, I bought the uh, makings for this bomb at Home Depot on my own credit card. <laughs> you know, it's, it's very amateur league stuff. If they had thought through what they were doing and the fact that they would probably eventually be at the center of a shitstorm, they would not have done something in this way. If they can't pull that together, they're definitely not going to pull off a totally decentralized. Like I, as far as I know, no one's really pulled off a fully decentralized social network. And and if I'm wrong, please don't send us email. I don't want to. Hear <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> not. I've never heard of a decentralized project that has anyone except crazy people on it. Yeah, but right now that solution clearly hasn't worked. Like nobody has been able to say. Hey, you don't like me? Like you, you kick me off your platform. I'm building my own platform, and all my fans will follow me. And the problem is probably just because they don't have any real fans. First of all, Alex Jones and Milo were both only popular because the media wouldn't stop fucking talking about them. Um, and the way that the media accessed what they were saying was through Twitter and through other social networks, YouTube, whatever. Right now that the media has to actively seek those guys out like everyone is too lazy to actually do that you know like nobody is gonna type in some it's gonna like sync a blockchain to read Milo's tweets I want I want to just clarify one issue there which is it's not that I don't think a decentralized social network will never happen all I'm saying is it's not it's not gonna get started by a bunch of castaways from regular Twitter I don't believe that the people who got kicked off Twitter are the right foundational generation for a new form of culture and media. I think there has to be optimism and there has to be something beyond I'm an angry person who was too angry for Twitter. I think uh, if you look at early Bitcoin or any of these things, it has to have a narrative and mythology that appeals to a broader portion of the population than the people who are just worried about getting kicked off of Twitter for being Nazis. Yeah, I agree. I mean, do you, do you remember this happening about a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago, where somebody tried to start a version of Twitter that was just for journalists to talk to one another without having like the intrusion of the public? So it was like basically Twitter, but all your at replies would be other journalists, which is basically what media Twitter is anyway. You basically just invited me to the worst possible <laughs> it was party. So bad. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, people have tried a gazillion different takes on the social network. They're not valuable. To your to your point, yeah, I think that like you go on there and it was like three people taking it seriously, and then there's like fifty people like me who signed up just to troll. And I think your point that like it's really hard to create a, a social network that is an alternative based just on the idea of don't you find this current social network annoying? It's it's just not enough incentive for people to get out. I think that there's a widespread, what I consider a misperception, and I'll probably get shit for this, but like the idea that crypto is basically censorship proof or censorship resistant. I think the way that people take censorship in that context is very literally like, censoring speech yeah and i take it more broadly as meaning 
can't be shut down. Yeah. It doesn't matter what it is. It's that it's it's fundamental design is to prevent itself from being shut down. And so I, I don't, when I hear that like Bitcoin is censorship resistant money, I don't really like hear, oh, it's for a like social network where you can say whatever you want. I hear it as its life force is not uh, something that the state can cut off. And that is a bigger and more profound idea of censorship resistance. But I think that we keep coming back to this idea of censorship in the sense of like uh, 140 characters of text. And that doesn't make quite as much sense to me. Okay, let's play like our favorite hypothetical game on the show, which is what would Brian Armstrong do, right? Yeah. If you remember when Toshi launched, um, Toshi being the D app that Brian Armstrong was behind, that was the sort of precursor to Ethereum world, there was a Twitter clone on there, right? Like there, and, sure, yeah. Um, they almost all have a have a like at least like a messaging layer. Sure. It's so easy to to make Twitter in a box that like everyone tacks it on whatever product they're making. So here's my question: What would happen if that thing did get sort of popular and it became like Gab? What do you think Brian Armstrong would do? Like, do you think he would shut it down? Because that would certainly be a problem for a lot of reasons, you know, behind Ethereum. And, you know, I think Vitalik probably wouldn't be behind that either. Or do you think he would just let it go and be like this breeding ground for people to have crazy QAnon theories and, you know, like do crazy shit eventually? If Toshi Twitter actually worked now, it would be a huge fucking catastrophe. It would be full of crazy shit. It would not work very well. It would be too soon. And Brian Armstrong would be on the news explaining why a decentralized Toshi Twitter user did something terrible, potentially. No, I agree. I feel like that's a headache he doesn't want. And that's why when people bring up these decentralized Twitter things, I'm like, it may be for the best for your project if it's not even going to come out for two or three years. Okay, but here's the thing, though, right? Like, uh, there's the, the, the time between now and three years from now when this thing might work. Mm-hmm. The world isn't going to change, you know, like uh, the internet behavior might change a little bit, but the people who are going to be drawn to this are still the same people, you know, like, do you think that at that time, if you're Brian Armstrong or whoever is behind this, like, do you think that at that point, like, you can't really censor it, you can't take actions to ban trolls, you can't, you can't stop harassing and threatening behavior, you can't stop people from sharing Nazi memes, because it's, it's it's antithetical to the entire idea of the project. And so I, I guess I was just thinking about that this week because I was just like, well, these people will go to decentra- try to go to decentralized options and the people who are running these places can't do anything about it. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's the point, right? Yeah, yeah, but it, it's, dis- it's discomforting. <laughs> I guess I'll just put it that I way. Have to, I have to be honest. I think overall... You probably ride slightly deeper in the free speech camp than I do, but yeah. this idea doesn't actually bother me that much. But I hold fast to this isn't the right time for it. We need to get more people onto D apps before this could possibly work. Because the only people interested in doing this in the present are exactly the people you describe. Maybe people here will be surprised to hear, but you know, I had pretty strong free speech feelings. You are right about that. And I 
don't really see a problem with, you know, the idea. It's not a bad thing that the technology for this sort of stuff is not around right now to support a full ecosystem of this type of behavior. Like, I don't, I generally don't think that you should ban subreddits for all the general, usual free speech reasons, but. I, I actually, I agree with you on all yeah. that. Like, I don't, I, I'm, I'm glad that as somebody who is interested in crypto that a gigantic flood of people aren't occupying the uh, crypto space and that all the messaging and the things that you and I find interesting to discuss, like, you know, things like Tony Shang's newsletter, aren't all just talking about, like, what are we going to do about all this fucking crazy hate speech and all these crazy people who are doing horrible things uh, and communicated purely through, you know, blockchain-based apps. I, I think it would be disqualifying for me to be interested in the space. Yeah, and I, I honestly just don't think it's going to happen. It's not even something to particularly worry about. Like, we have a pretty good test case here in Gab, which is they like looked at crypto and were like, too hard. They, <laughs> yeah, PayPal they tried, and GoDaddy. They like, tried to be this thing and they're just like, yeah. no. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so like, will someone actually do it? Yes. Someone will eventually do it. It's just like, hey, remember when um, two months ago, three months ago, when Augur came out and I was like, there's going to be decentralized assassinations. And then it was like, ah, also, this is really hard to use. I can't sync the chain. It's like, okay, we got to make this work better before we can get this assassination market going. That is true. It's true. Um, okay. So just like full circle now, like what, what is your thought? Like make your case to me that, that we are crypto influencers. I didn't realize it until this month, but, I was reading Nick Palmgarten's story in The New Yorker, and he was talking about the like most laughable projects. And he mentioned that um, Banana Plantation in Laos and Denticoin, both longtime coin talk targets. <laughs> then I was reading uh, an article in Breaker, by, I think by David Z. Morris, and he also referenced us talking about Denticoin on the first episode. So I think that we have been part of the overall laughing of Denticoin, and that makes us influencers. Okay, I would argue that <laughs> I would argue that that Nick Palmgarten, who I believe has probably been on your other podcast, right? No, um, no, no. My first interview with with him on, was on Coin Talk. Oh, really? He is why your is he, he is why, your former colleague. He's my though, former colleague. For, yeah, and why has he not been on long form? He's great. Uh, he admitted that he thinks he agreed to do it and then failed to like follow up several times, like four <laughs> okay, years that ago. Makes sense. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Nick Bobgar, I think is. He's fantastic. I won't, I won't embarrass him too much here, but he is like I think he's one of the best, if not you know like like top five. I think uh, really, really good. But but he is somebody he is somebody that yeah like he's somebody I I did used to work at the New Yorker with him. <laughs> and the people at Breaker you know the people who are sort of behind Breaker people who are in the magazine world as well and so I don't know like I would say that 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 the examples that you're citing are the people who would most likely listen to an episode of Coin Talk. I know, but doesn't that mean that we're like the most powerful because we're, <laughs> we're the like, ones who are whispering in the ears of all the journalists? We're like soundtrack of the crypto media Illuminati. If I had a coin project and I was like looking to get great value in sponsoring a show, wouldn't I make that show the show that all the people covering crypto listen to? I think that's where I'd put my money. Uh, does that mean, though, that we're only catering to the uh, sort of media elite then? Because I, I don't like that. I mean, no, 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 no. I feel like we're like um, 
It's like why you might put ads in the Hollywood Reporter. It's like the people who make the stuff listen to it. You know, okay. you get extra value because it's people who who then write about you and, and rebeam out your message. Jay, just agree to this and okay. agree that our email is hi at cointalk.show <laughs> and there's lots of sponsorship opportunities. <laughs> yeah. We're yeah. totally transparent. Oh, yeah, I can, yeah. I forgot about that part. Yes, we are definitely influencers. <laughs> 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 we're, we're extremely influential. You know, I will say here, uh, Aaron, like, you know, you and I are, are generally skeptical of every single crypto publication that comes out partially because we're like haters, but also because we can read. And a Breaker is pretty good. It's really, it's really excellent. It's the crypto magazine I would have made. It's funny. It's irreverent. It is not all like no coin gloom and doom. And they seem to pick good angles on stories. Like it is consistently something I didn't, I haven't already read about. And there is none of it that feels like it is a press release for a coin or something like that that is being repackaged. And they never talk about the market or like resistance points or stuff like that, which is great because I find all that stuff to be incredibly boring. Unless it's our friend Ledger Status talking about it. I agree with you about Breaker. I like that they don't just say things like people are doing pay for play. They run very, very simple tests, which is sending out a fake, funny email to people that's like, will you publish the story for money? And they're like, here are the publications that said yes. Yeah. I feel like that stuff is totally needed. Yeah. Uh, I'm a big fan. I have one thing to say, and maybe we can just tie up on this point. I know you got to get out of here. So uh, this only happened this week. I got, I was reading a bunch of Breaker, and I was like, finally, like, who are these people? And I was like, okay, here are the people who work here. Okay, I know some of these people's names. Like, that makes sense. And I was like, but like, Where's the money coming from? It's all put together by, or it's under Singular DTV, which I then see is like a blockchain media company that also is doing that um, documentary that I think they sent us a copy. Uh, I think it's called Trust Machine. It's uh, directed by uh, Ted from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. So like, that's, I'm not going to say it's a shit coin, but it's some kind of a token-y project. It's interesting how, Anytime you peel back the layers of anything on crypto, there's some kind of weird crypto scheme behind it. Sure, sure. Um, And no shade on Breaker. I'm actually curious about what it means that like Breaker is under singular DTV and they're also doing documentaries. Like what is the editorial control? Like what does it mean to like start a publication in that way? So maybe we'll have on uh, someone from Breaker to, to ask about that. Yeah. But I am, I am very sensitive to, in crypto, you know, no matter how much you think you're getting something that's either um, objective or uh, someone who doesn't have any bias or any uh, coins in the game, almost everything in crypto is run on crypto money, run on the crypto machine in some way, whether it's something like Coindesk that throws massive crypto conferences to... Uh, it appears Breaker is part of this singular DTV thing. I don't think I can think of a single other niche where it's all under the same umbrella so much. Yeah, except for our podcast, which has no tokens or profit. (laughs) We're we're so decentralized that we don't even tape in the same location, though we are in the same city. (laughs) Yeah, we're in the same borough. We don't. We so against centralization that we never see. We never speak to each other in person. Yeah. <laughs> Our audio tracks are also decentralized. So yeah, we we are the most decentralized and the most transparent and the most honest 
crypto product out there. I've been actually a little bit unhappy with our like tagline uh, on iTunes, which is something like two amateurs who know nothing, blah, 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 blah. I feel like maybe we just want to go with the most decentralized podcast on the internet. How do you feel? <laughs> yeah, I'm into it. <laughs> okay, excellent. There's only two of us, and we make it a point never to see each other. That's our that's our podcast. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and also our editor, we've never met him and don't know anything about him. We do like him. He also does not live in the United States. I, I went to pay him and realized that I don't have his email address. I've literally only communicated with him on Telegram. <laughs> yeah, I'm for it. Let's change it. Right, right, right. iTunes right now. Okay, we, very we good. Change. Cool. All right. See you next week. Okay, cool. All right. This episode of Coin Talk was taped Monday, October 29th at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. The Bitcoin price index was $6,288. And that was Coin Talk. Wow. It, it feels good to know that I'm a crypto influencer. Hey, you're probably a crypto influencer just by listening to the show. Uh, but if you tell a friend about the show, uh, you will be that much more powerful. If you tell someone who wants to sponsor the show, you can get a 10x value. Uh, that would be a good uh, a good thing to do. And you can get in touch with hi at cointalk.show. Sold a few sponsorships. Those will be coming up. They're lonely. They need friends. Sponsor the show. We're very reasonable. I actually like to read sponsorships on the air. So if you've uh, even got a modest budget, talk to me. I'm sure we can work something out. This episode was edited by James Nicholson. Thanks to him. Thanks to our partners over at Medium. They make this whole thing possible. They really do. It's, it's completely true. We would not be able to influence without their influence, and you would not get influenced. So uh, everyone who's listening, thank you. Send us an email. We're going to do a uh, mailbag show, okay? Mailbag, hi at cointalk.show. As soon as we get like 20 questions, we'll do a mailbag show. All right, see you then. <laughs>